This episode is sponsored by New Balance and Sarah's taking on the 2024 TCS London Marathon with their support. Today, we're really excited to talk to you about two specific shoes from the Fuel Cell range. Yes, the brand new Fuel Cell Rebel V4. Now, I have the luxury of training in a few different pairs of shoes. So currently how I use this shoe is in my tempo runs, my interval runs, my kind of faster sessions. Also, what I'm throwing at those sessions is the Fuel Cell Super Comp Elite V4 from New Balance. Because you'll be wearing those on race day. Yes. And I wore the V3 back for my Valencia Marathon PB in December and I'm excited as a shoe geek because they're essentially the ultimate marathon racing shoe based on innovation including being tested by athletes like the American marathon record holder Emily Sisson and she's run 218.29 so she's not hanging about. No I'll be slightly behind that time. Marginally. Marginally. Um, If you want to check out the Rebel V4 or the Supercomp Elite V4 head to the link in the show notes. This is the Running Channel podcast with me, Andy Badley, my co-host, Sarah Hartley. And over there, pushing the buttons again, is Rick. So every week, we're going to take you through one major topic in the world of running, what we think are the most exciting news and events happening in the world of running, and answer, most importantly, your questions, if we can. Yeah, take us on your runs or watch us on YouTube. We are here to help you with your running. Right, Sarah, another week. What's the update from you? Obviously, you're knee-deep in marathon training right now for Osaka. I am waist-deep. I am the, the, <laughs> waist end, deep, yeah. the, the end is almost in sight. I am just about to come into the taper period, which I am so excited for, although I keep um, expecting it to just tail off and uh, the training keeps getting harder. Yeah, there's, there's no rest and I don't think you ever feel ready, right? No, you don't. And I think you also feel way, way more tired towards the end of it. And then just at the point where the training eases off a little bit and you can feel a little bit more refreshed, that's when the race nerves kicks in. So there's no respite. And nothing Is it flat? Is it flat? I'm going to be honest. I haven't looked at the course profile. I'm too scared. Well, there's nothing <laughs> to worry about. There's nothing to worry about. How hard can it be? You've only got to travel to the other side of the world to a country and culture that you've never experienced before and then run 26.2 miles. <laughs> I can't imagine that'd be too hard. <laughs> no, it should be it's fine. Flat. Although, it's flat. I tell you what, so many people I've talked to who are like chasing six stars are literally flying in on a Friday and then racing on a Sunday. And, you know, that's what I'm doing too. So I'm here for you. Anyone else who's doing that, yeah. if you have any tips, please let me know. There was actually, I've seen loads of um like jet lag hacks yeah but you can't really test those before i've got some tips I, i've raced in japan and china so like I flex <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I won't give you any help there no sorry please help <laughs> yeah but you can start to start start to slightly adjust your body clock before you travel um you can think about keeping the room dark until a certain time of day when you get there um little tips like that the times that you eat and, and whether you force yourself to stay in bed or not the way that you expose yourself to daylight things like that can all make a massive difference yeah i think the biggest fear i have at the moment is that i've 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 done okay with jet lag in the past but you never know what your body's going to feel like when you get 35k into a race and that is the moment i'm fearful of well i mean i, I don't know how good all of the marshals on course are going to be in terms of their english i'm sure they'll be able to help you out yeah that, doesn't concern you at all that you might you might need some help on the course and no one's gonna be able to speak English. yeah i'll just be there having wet myself crying <laughs> on the sideline unable to no. communicate what has happened i know what training you've been doing um and i'm really excited i think it's going to be an amazing experience for you and i'm excited to see how you get yeah on. excited to go to japan as well because it's been closed after covid for a lot longer than many places as well i know it does seem to be the place that everyone's going this year so i'm yeah. very very excited to be running a marathon and speaking of six stars next year tokyo marathon i guess maybe put that on the bucket list 100 percent. that one is pretty flat isn't it um 
We're looking yeah. to wreck. We're looking to wreck the resident uh, course profile expert. Just, just trying to remember the last time I ran it. Uh, I tell uh, you what, we should redo the background of your shot to just have like elevation profiles, <laughs> and you can just be like a weatherman that turns round and goes, "Ah, oh, yes, Tokyo. Bit of a hill at mile twelve. It's flat, but not as flat. Okay, okay, brilliant. I think actually, what we should redo Rick's background behind him uh, for anyone trying to imagine this, listening to the podcast, is uh, the actually beautiful mind graphics where there's just equations in his head because that's how confused he looked just then when he's asked a question so actually we should jump into what our topic is for today's episode what is it sarah it is how much does a pro runner earn yeah a little bit scary to talk about this one i think like this the, is a juicy topic yeah and and also i'm a little bit out of touch with that world um i retired from running in 2016 2017 um so i have my knowledge from from the period when i was running and i've spoken to some people a bit more recently to be a bit more clued up on this obviously we're not going to throw anyone out there and, and divulge anything too sensitive but I think it's interesting to talk about because there'll be perceptions I'm going to ask you and Rick in a minute what you think someone who's running at the Olympics might earn um, but before we do that I'm going to break it down I guess into where you can earn money as a pro athlete yeah because I think that actually is the most interesting thing you obviously especially with athletics it's not it, it is a little bit like if you're watching football where there are seasons and you're doing stuff kind of quite yeah. frequently. But to someone who might only see the Olympics, yeah. it is actually quite strange when you think about it to think like, oh, well, how actually do you make a living out of that? Yeah, how do you make money for the other f three years <laughs> when, yeah. when it's not Olympic year? Yeah, so uh, the majority of most people's earnings, uh, if they are earning money, and we'll come on to that because there's quite a lot of people that are running at a really high level that won't make any money at all from the sport. Or certainly it's like a nominal amount and they're, they have other jobs as well. Um, but there are the shoe contract. So the, a company like a big shoe, shoe manufacturer, Nike, Adidas, New Balance, et cetera, will pay for a runner to run in their product, to endorse their product, and to be wearing their product kind of at the most high-profile competition. So whether that's a big city marathon or at, um, at in the Diamond League, which is the premium athletics competition that you'll see on the TV or at other meets around the world. And so they get exposure through that. It's a little bit different than at the Olympics because the only thing that the athletes have control over there is the footwear that they're wearing because they're in their National Federation's kit. So I think we'll come back to that, but that's a frustration for a brand, I imagine. If you've paid a, a, an athlete a lot of money uh, and then the Olympics is the, the pinnacle of their sport, but mm. then they're in uh, singlet and shorts from their country's kit manufacturer, which might, is most likely to be Nike or Adidas at the Olympics, then you've kind of, how, how do you get the exposure? And there's all sorts of uh, rules. I forget the number of the, the clause, but there's, there's rules. There's a blackout period around the Olympics itself where brands, even though they've paid loads of money to sponsor an athlete for four years, can't talk about that athlete and can't use the word Olympics during that period. So many like rules around the Olympics, yeah. even broadcast rights, aren't yeah. there? And, and using those rights again afterwards, you can't use a lot of the footage after a, a few weeks after the event. Yeah, so you'll see, uh, this we've gone off on a tangent already, but you will see some of the smarter athletes um, if they, I say smarter, the ones that are maybe less exhausted after the, the event that they've won, they might win a gold medal at the Olympics and they'll take their shoes off and tie them in a knot and put them around their neck because that's their way of being able to say thank you to a sponsor, which has ultimately paid for their you know mortgage and travel and all that sort of stuff for the last four years. Interesting. I will always look at people doing that and be like, wow, they must just really want to take their shoes off. Yeah. And well, no, it's the only way of getting, like if you've got a waist up shot or a a shot of the, you know, a headshot of the athlete if they've just won. Yeah. Like the, the only branding that's present Show there off is the shoes. Is, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's what a hack. What an absolute yeah. hack. I mean, yeah. This is this is a kind of a moment of realization. You're like, oh wow, all those laces over all those years around people's necks. It's just showing off. Thanks very much. You got me here. 
Yeah, and, and yeah. I think that's what people like. There's an element of cynicism where you might be like, oh, they're just they're just endorsing, mm. you know, New Balance, Adidas, Saucony, whoever it might be. But actually, that that athlete wouldn't have got there without that shoe sponsor. Because in the most in most athletes' cases, that's their biggest income. So that's one income. The other one is appearance fees. Um, so if you're running at a big road race, like one of the big city marathons, um, or you're running at a Diamond League event, um, or some of the tiers below Diamond Leagues, then they will pay. Uh, in some cases, some very selected cases, really, an appearance fee. Um, that's for you to show up. So to, in order to get the highest profile athletes at your race, then you'll pay those athletes to turn up because they're the athletes that put bums on seats. So they're the athletes that are going to sell tickets to that event. So, so unless you've, I guess then that's the kind of reverse of like, if you're someone who's wanting to make money until you've got a, a win or until you're known yeah. about or until you're kind of high profile, that isn't going to be a source of income because exactly. you're not a name, so no one's going to... No, so appearance fees are for names that will guarantee ticket sales broadly or TV rights or, or local sponsorship, for example. Yeah. Um, so I've been at meets where Usain Bolt was running and he was clearly the big ticket item for obvious reasons. And there were people who couldn't even get tickets that were climbing up fences and uh, standing on floodlights and stuff to be able to see. So that's that's the kind of pull of someone like that, which is why they're worth that money. So that's appearances, then prize money. So if you win a race, then you win money. Um, and that usually pays down to a certain place in, in a race, uh, but it drops off really fast. So uh, the, the top Diamond League events, and from an athletics perspective, I think the top prize for first place in those events is $10,000, which is pretty good, but there's not that many Diamond League events during the year. Also, one person gets to win that. And mm. in, in events, there are some events that are dominated by one person. And if that person's so dominant, then clearly they're making pretty good money because they're winning all of that money. But in events like the 1,500, the 5,000, 10,000, for example, there's more than eight people in that race. And because in the laned events, they only let eight in, they pay down to eighth place. Whereas in the 1500 meters, they might pay down to 12th place, but the guys in, the guys or girls in, in ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th, will get $500. So these are the best people in the world. $500. Wow. Yeah. Also, and when you compare that to, I mean, I'm guessing it's the same in terms of like working down, but as a prize money, I mean, the, the closest one I can relate it to is Wimbledon tennis. Yeah. But they're getting correct me if I'm wrong, like hundreds for winning. Mil millions? Millions, maybe yeah. millions. Yeah. yeah, so it's certainly, it's, it's <clears throat> disproportionately like more than, than in athletics. Yeah, so even the biggest road marathons, their actual prize money, whilst it's very generous, you might, I think, get 40 or 50,000 for winning London Marathon. I, I could have that completely wrong, but I think it's that kind of ballpark. Most of the money is, is on time bonuses, world record bonuses, actually appearance, actual appearance fees. So to get someone like Kipchoge to run in those races, that those races will be having to pay I imagine six figures to get him and, and athletes of that level to, to show up. But if you're down the bottom of the elite field, yeah. then you might have had to pay your own way to get there. It's unlikely you'd pay your own way in most races. They'd usually support travel and hotel. But yeah, you're not getting paid to run. You're there because you're hoping to have your breakthrough. And then that breakthrough will allow you to then have a conversation with a, a shoe company for them to start paying you or have a conversation with other races for them to start supporting you to give you your chance to run even faster because once you have a breakthrough you're more desirable um, and then alongside that now something i didn't have to deal with might be social media profile so if you've got two athletes that are of the same caliber but one has a much bigger instagram following and is more savvy about creating content around running then that person's going to be more appealing to to the brand to pay them more money so that's so hard though because if you're trying to make your way up through the ranks, then you've not only got the pressure of needing to train every single day, which is a full-time job in itself, yeah. like running, you were running what, 12 times a week yeah. when you were at your yeah. peak. Yeah. Um, you've got that pressure. You've got social media, which if you're trying to do kind of big 
campaigns or endorse a brand or if you yeah. look at if you look at like influencers who their whole job is kind of yeah. just posting on Instagram that's a full job in itself and mm. then plus you've got to think about like where your income's coming in as well it's time isn't it yeah mm. I don't I don't I'm grateful that I didn't have that level of um requirement in terms of putting my myself up there it was kind of on on my sponsors at the time to raise my profile for me because I didn't have a way of doing it necessarily what do you mean Andy your Instagram is huge oh yeah massive massive <laughs> um and uh, but you did have your own trainers Andy I, amazingly yes yeah. so 2009 I want to say there was the New Balance 890 badly so the, the shoes were released and they had my name on the back which I still can't believe is a thing yeah, that's very can you cool. You still get Didn't... a pair now. I mean, they must be worth a fortune. You can get them under so. my from under my under my bed. I've got four mint <laughs> pairs under my bed. So you know, hit me up if you want to pay for those. Didn't you once get into a lift and someone else had a pair? Of? Yeah, at, weirdly, uh, San Francisco airport in a lift going down to the car park. Yeah, there was a total stranger in, in these shoes, which was really cool. That's and my that and they were probably like, "Who's bonkers. this weirdo that's smiling so much?" Yeah, no, one, they, no, they knew what, because my training partner I was traveling with, uh, Mark Draper, he um, immediately tapped him on the shoulder and started asking them about it. They had absolutely <laughs> no idea. <laughs> I think they just, maybe they bought them on a massive discount because they were on sale because no one wanted them. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah. Hey, don't put yourself down. Oh, no, I'm sure don't. loads of people <laughs> love them. You should eBay those remaining well, four pairs. I want them. I think they're the only ones. That, so they're, they're mint. But you don't need four, Andy. It's just greedy. They did You've four only different got versions over four years. So uh, they clung yeah, on to one of them. I mean, Gordon Bennett. I know, it's a bit greedy, sorry. Um, but a lot of that stuff that I've talked about, appearance fees and how much money you make and so on, comes down to your agent. And so it, it's not it's not a level playing field. Like if you have, if you think about right now, I could set up as an agent or you could set up as an agent and try and sign a great new promising athlete, but you don't know what the market's like. So mm. you could be saying to a brand, I've got this brand new up and coming marathon runner. I want you to... Um, pay them to, to represent you, but you've got no benchmark. So you don't know what other athletes of their level are being paid. And so an agent who has got a lot of athletes on their books and knows what the relative worth is, is also always going to be able to drive more. And then in, I was going to ask you guys the question, what would be your perception? So someone who's running at an Olympic games, world championships, and they're at a really good level, but they're not, you know, Mo Farah, Dino Asher Smith, they're not world champions, but they're really good. Some of the best in the world. What do you think they might be earning a year? from say just the shoe contract or, or sponsorship see you go first Rick. i would guess that someone who is performing consistently at the major events would be taking home around about 75 to eighty thousand pounds a year okay sarah yeah i was going to my initial thought would be at least a hundred yeah with the caveat that then like the big stars are on like closer to a million yeah, I think you'd be surprised that if we take Team Great Britain, for example, Team GB at the Olympics, a lot of the athletes that were that are at an Olympic level, but they're not household names, will be making a significantly less than that. I would hazard a guess that kind of the average might be more like thirty thousand dollars a year. That kind of that kind of mark. Wow. Obviously, there's really high earners that, that yeah. then level out the average, but there will also be people who make an Olympic Games who don't get paid at all. They might have mm -hmm. a kit contract where they um, just get kit which is obviously nice, but you can't live on shoes and, and vests. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that makes sense because then you hear about all the other jobs, you know, and you hear the commentary at the Olympics. So many of them saying, well, you know, I don't know, some of the people in like the shooting yeah. team or the gymnastic team, that, that they do other things on the side. Well, yeah, yeah, like isn't Kev Seward a teacher? So Kev Seward's a marathon runner from Northern Ireland that I used to train with. Um, yeah, he's he's a full-time PE teacher, but he's run 210 for a marathon. So, and he's running two Olympics. So, um, yeah, the, there's there's a, a massive disparity there. And actually that disparity then ex extends even more 
when you're looking at the different countries that you might be from and the events that you're in. So there are definitely events that are considered premium events uh, in terms of what the brands want to pay for exposure, if you think about the 100 meters. Um, uh, but also things like it was fortunate when I was running anyway that the 1500 meters actually, because the shoe companies are all based in America mostly, and the mile in the US is such a huge thing, then the 1500 meter runners or the milers were kind of hot property. But there's a huge disparity between runners in the US. If you're a US-based runner who's been through the collegiate system, which is has, you know, the high school system as well in the US is really competitive. There's lots of fans that are born out of that culture. Um, then those fans care about which company the best 5K runner in the in the collegiate system signs for when they go professional, so when they graduate from university. And so I would I would hazard a guess that the athletes in the US of a similar standard to the UK um, would be getting two, three, four times as much as their kind of base wow. contract from the, from the shoe companies. Yeah, which is a, a big difference. But because they've already got a fan base, that, so in terms of value to the brand, I, I don't know whether that's fair or not, but that's definitely definitely how it works. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Like the the, the more people you've got behind you, the more you're going to get paid. But I guess yeah. what it shows as well is actually everyone who's lining up at the Olympics is mainly going to be there out of passion and dedication, which... Yeah. is nice but also i think out the amount of hours that you put into something it definitely seems like they should be getting more to me yeah i think i think that's what i'd like to put across that actually very few people are earning crazy money where they could retire from athletics and then not have to go straight into working again those are the, the real you know top people who are become those household names but there are people making olympic finals or, or medalists at worlds and europeans where it's not it's not staggering money um, yeah, because you're also your career lifetime is like pretty short as well. I know there are like yeah. a few people who are going into like late thirties, but yeah. actually like a the lifespan of an athlete isn't super long. And when you add injury into that, it might be even shorter. Yeah, and actually, so you could have an incredibly successful year, make a lot of money, and then immediately lose all, a lot of that money because the way that contracts are structured are that once you've achieved, say, you're a world champion, then it might be written into a contract that if you're not in the top three in the world the following year, that contract gets cut in half, wow. and then the following year it might get cut in half again. Um, or if you're injured and don't run enough times that year, then again, there are reductions in your contract. Same with lottery funding. I was funded by the lottery, uh, which is means tested in the UK. So you get access to physiotherapy and some money. But when you earn above a certain amount of money, they start taking money off it. Mm. Um, but once you became a, a world champion, a world finalist or an Olympic medalist, if you kind of don't sustain that level for the next two years, then you get cut from that as well. So it's, there's, there's very little continuity and you could spend, ultimately for me, I was training every year and there's probably one race a year where if I had a bad day, then that would dramatically affect my earning power for the next year and then potentially next four years. Scary. I mean, just running and wanting to run fast is hard enough. But then when you put your like life, being able to pay rent, bills, whatever on that race as well, that is a huge amount of pressure. Yeah, it makes me nervous just talking about it. So I think maybe we should wrap it up. <laughs> Yeah, but that was a very interesting insight. Thank you for that, Andy. This is the Running Channel podcast. Next up, we're each going to be picking a new story from the world of running. Don't forget that this episode is brought to you by New Balance and their Fuel Cell Super Comp Elite V4, which is their ultimate marathon racing shoe, and their Fuel Cell Rebel V4, which is their do-anything running shoe, but skewed towards speed, which is what Sarah's been using it for in her marathon training. And both of them are lighter than their predecessors. Yes, I have been wearing them in training. And I know that this isn't a scientific fact, but I feel like the placebo 
effective. If your shoes look fast, you will be fast. Well, I always feel like I look fast. What about you? <laughs> oh, me too, especially in these. And that's what I've been enjoying in training. That kind of like angular geometric design of the shoe just makes me want to go faster. Yeah. So if you want to look much cooler than me or Sarah. Hey, leave me out of it. If you want to look cooler than Andy, wear anything. If you want to look cooler than me, head to the link in the show notes to check out the Rebel V4 and the Super Complete V4. <laughs> It's almost time to answer some of your questions, but first up for the news. Andy, what have you got? Well, I found a piece uh, in the Daily Mail. Um, <laughs> apologies. Favourite I'm going to claim that someone sent that to me, um, which is about how runners have become, or some runners are becoming addicted to running and actually the, the negative connotations of that. So addiction in, in a negative way. So it was from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Um, they interviewed a bunch of runners um, and asked them why they run, so their, their motivations to go running, and then they measured some markers for addiction. Um, so things like withdrawal symptoms if they weren't able to go and do running. And actually they found that one in four casual runners showed evidence associated with uh, addiction. And the key distinction that they made was that the runners who were choosing to run in order to essentially escape problems in their life were the ones that had a, an unhealthy relationship with running. Whereas the ones that were running for positive reasons, i.e. they decided mm. to go for a run to improve their health and fitness or to, to it's, it's a nuance, but they, they were saying that those, that was the distinction that, that actually, um, those who were, were running for those negative reasons were less in control of their running if they used it as a coping strategy. But what, what is an unhealthy reason to go running? Cause in most circumstances, actually getting out for a run is just great for you physically and mentally is it not i would argue though so i i wouldn't say i am addicted but i definitely have had i started running and i found it massively beneficial for my mental health yeah. but there definitely have been periods where i've either gone from like just what running when i can to running on a training plan yeah. and actually on days where it's like a rest day and i've actually been having a bit of a rubbish day I've then gone, okay, no, I need something else in my life that helps me if I'm having a bad brain day. Mm. Because if you're like, oh, I need to go out for a run, it's the only thing I can do. Is that so, guilt and so, for some people as well? It's not even guilt. I they're think, not going out. Yeah, and they so should some, be going out. Yeah, so I've seen a lot of people as well of like if they pick up an injury, they're suddenly yeah. not knowing what to do with themselves. So I think running is so good and definitely I am someone who I am 100% nicer to talk to <laughs> if I'm having a bad day. I can vouch for that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> after a run I'm like a even more of a ray of sunshine yeah. but I think it is very important to recognize what running gives you and also but other things that you have in your life yeah so it's not a bad thing to go out for a run if you feel like that helps you deal with the stresses that life's throwing at you I think what I took from the article was just to be aware of the fact that if that's your your only way of dealing with these things and potentially you're trying to escape from a, a bad situation yeah. or, or mental health, then you could be aware of the fact that that could be, you could be a risk factor of then sort of that exercise addiction whereby, like you said, if you've already run that day and then you're dealing with something that day where your only way of dealing with it would be to go for another run. You're not getting to the root of the cause. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So Sarah, what have you got? Right, I've got something completely different. Two things, a couple of races that have caught my eye this week. So firstly, I just want to give a nod to the Arc of Attrition, which is another incredible ultramarathon yeah. race that has taken place. Incredible performances across the board. Looks brutal. People did very well. There was 
<laughs> it's an excellent summary of, of something <laughs> which took days That's and hours my of people's quick time. Summary, yeah. sorry. No, I just want to highlight that race. There are some yeah. really, really epic documentaries, and I think yeah, you're a proper fan of this, aren't you? I, think I, just, I just love it. But another addiction, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Careful. Why go for a ten-minute run when you could go for three days? That's yeah. all I'm saying. But another one that caught my eye was there's a tunnel ultra which is near Bath. It happens on a Friday in yes. March. And it is 200 miles in the dark. And so every, every it's out and back, right? Through this tunnel. Yeah, it's Just a one continuous. mile shuttle. Not, one so you mile. Literally, I didn't realise it was complete, only a mile. It's only it can't be completely dark. It, uh, well, I have, so I've seen pictures and there were there was like a little light. There's but no, no daylight. How mad is this? Someone ran it, went blind temporarily in the race, but still at the end of it, thanked the race organisers. So they're, they're doing a one experience. mile shuttle. Well, that out and back 100 yeah, times. Yes, so they call it a two mile loop. <laughs> <laughs> you, you run to your traffic cone, turn around and then run back. Uh, that, that anybody that can do that so has dangerous. My... It sounds like, aren't you just going to be taking people out everywhere in the dark? No, so I think you can see a little bit, but the point is that there's there's kind of no daylight. They describe it as you're really, really going back to basics. Oh so gosh. there's yeah. one toilet, there's 40 people taking well, part. Is there a light in the toilet? <laughs> Well, I think you can see it's not. You're not running in pitch black. Black. You're not running in pitch black. It's not like that. That restaurant where you literally. Oh, also, you should. Noir. Dollar Dollar Noir. Noir. I've, been, I've been to Dollar Noir. I ate snake. So this is a restaurant for anyone listening who doesn't know. Where How do you it's know? Completely pitch black, and you you're you're essentially it's supposed to heighten your senses. And I think that's part of this here is that uh, a little bit like the transcendence events where you're trying to. It's a spiritual experience, right? You, you you have that repetition that allows you to get into a almost meditative state. Yeah, and it's really simple as well. Like there's, it's kind of a no fuss race. But I've read loads of um like quotes from people who have taken part, and it is, it is them just saying it is an experience like no other. If it, it takes you to the kind of you, I think one person said that it's like loads of people in a midlife crisis lining up together and then, <laughs> <laughs> then taking well, it on. I'm having a full midlife crisis, so maybe. Don't worry, Andy. It's uh, it's February right now. I've signed you up. Two hundred uh, miles. What what could yeah. there is a fifty five hour cutoff time though. So. It's, I mean, nothing about it sounds appealing. Everything about it sounds terrifying. But it gives us a good chance to in yeah. a minute. Start answering people's questions. Yep. So if you want Andy to run the Tunnel Ultra, then please email uh, in to oh. podcast at therunningchannel.com and we will make it happen. I don't think we will make it happen. We will. We'll make it happen. <laughs> Don <Dans> Le Noir. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's kick off on question time then. First one from Edward, who asks... Have any of you ever suffered with shin splints? And if so, how on earth do you treat them? Just before we do, I noticed you say ask, Rick. Uh, Sarah was just giving us some uh, some abuse before the podcast about me saying podcast, not podcast. Podcast. We're both from, yeah. Pod podcast. Podcast. Yeah. What, do you say podcast? Podcast. Uh, yeah. This anyway. Is just a north, this is another north-south divide. North yeah. divide, yeah. yeah. Uh, ask. Yeah, let's crack ask. on. Well, he's asked the question, so yeah. I will answer the question Very or answer it, depending good. on what you want to do. Answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't do it. So and you went to Cambridge. <laughs> I, I did, a very don't long time ago. Cambridge. Oh. And you went to Cambridge, lad. <laughs> there we go. Please don't write in if you're from Liverpool and don't like what Rick just did. Um, so having shin splints, ultimately the, the, there's lots of different reasons that, that shin splints happen, but mainly it's lower limb strengthening or just not being used to the repeated impact. So that's my understanding anyway. Again, neither of us are medical experts, but the advice that we've had previously is things like 
slightly counterintuitive because your pain might be on your shin, but strengthening your calves, so doing calf raises, um, can provide the extra stability to absorb the shock and provide the, the extra stability when you're moving mechanically, which can help you with shin splints. So foot, ankle and calf strengthening, I think would be the secret here. Yeah, I talked to someone recently who had shin splints and they said that they've had it like a few times before and the biggest mistake they've made is just not giving themselves enough rest before coming back into running when yeah. it's happened. So if it is really causing you pain, definitely go and seek help from a medical professional because that's going to help. Yeah, They'll give you specific exercises that you can do to ensure that you're not going to have to take time off again, but don't come back too soon. I think there's like a hop test for shin splints. Have a look, um, speak to a medical professional, but yeah. definitely I, just don't come back too soon. And the funny thing is it makes me think of like, um, this is a weird tangent, but dandruff shampoo and uh, sensitive teeth toothpaste, they always say that you have to keep using it once it's solved your problem, you can't, you can't. <laughs> Such you, a rogue you tangent. You it really is. You yeah. can't then stop using it because then the thing comes back. The conditioning that you need to avoid shin splints like lower leg calf raises and so on do your calf raises all of the time otherwise the problems that you've had previously might strength come back. training yeah. like uh tom evans ultra runner always stands on one leg whilst brushing his teeth to That's help strengthen yeah with his, his proprioception and his balance for, mm -hmm. for yeah. the training i actually do that <laughs> <laughs> rick's just stopped mid <laughs> i brush my teeth on one leg i do a minute on each leg oh gosh um paul's emailed in <laughs> crack on <laughs> um paul asks I was wondering, having watched your video of cyclist versus runner, would it help to get quicker running 5 to 10k by doing some training on a bike? I'm just wondering if it would improve some muscle strength and help speed me up. This is all about cross-training, isn't it, basically? Ooh, interesting yeah. one on cross-training. That was also one of the most fun videos I've ever done on the running channel, uh, right? So it was billed as ex-pro athlete, me, against ex-pro cyclist. Um, we went head-to-head -head on the treadmill and on stationary bike, and it was absolutely brutal <laughs> yeah it was hard so i would be interested to hear your views on this andy because for me i don't know how much it does for speed but i mm. do know that if you're looking to build up mileage with your running then cycling can be a great way to add it in because it's less pressure and on your legs so if you want yeah. to kind of increase your mileage then adding in a little bit of cycling might help you get more yeah it's uh, it uses diff slightly different muscle recruitment patterns, so it will feel different, and you'll fatigue in a different way um, because if you're not regularly cycling, then it will f feel strange. Um, but yes, there's no impact, so that's the biggest benefit. So if you're looking to increase your overall training volume aerobically, so in terms of how much time you spent with an elevated heart rate, then cycling is a really good way to do it. You can obviously do it on a stationary bike inside, out of the weather conditions. You can do it at the gym. Uh, there are loads of benefits to that. Um, if you've got a little niggle, then jumping on the bike could be a way to not put any kind of impact through that until you're confident that it's better again. So yeah, it's, it's a great way of layering in additional aerobic work and it will make you better over five and 10K um, if it's going to help you to do a little bit more volume overall without risking injury. But in terms of specific speed, is the bike the crucial element missing? No, absolutely not. No, it's, not, it's not the thing that's going to make you faster, but it will make you fitter overall. Um, and bear in mind that you need to do a lot more cycling to have an equivalent benefit to the same amount of running in terms of time. So if you're running half an hour, then you need to cycle for longer than that, or you need to do intervals or so on on the bike to keep your heart rate elevated throughout. Um, otherwise the kind of proportional benefits not quite as much for the same time that you invest into it. But if you do have the time to fit in a little bit of cycling, it can be really, really beneficial. I cycle to work and I have noticed a difference in yeah. that you just feel a little bit more energized and you're getting in a little bit of extra stuff. 
Excellent. Well, that's it. We've got to the end of another episode. I don't think we've quite rinsed Andy enough this time, but that's okay. There is always time for that next time. So if you have any comments that you want to give to Andy, please do email them in. And please, whilst you're here, make sure to leave a comment or rate and review. We love reading all of your reviews on the podcast and we are so happy that it is doing so well. And we'll see you next time. This episode was brought to you by New Balance and two specific shoes from the Fuel Cell range, the Rebel V4 and the Supercomp Elite V4. And there's an incredible amount of technology in both of these shoes. I'm the shoe geek, Sarah hates this bit. The Fuel Cell technology is the midsole foam, which is aimed at being propulsive. So both of these shoes feel fast. And then in the Supercomp Elite V4, there are strategic midsole voids. So essentially gaps or holes in the, in the midsole, which in combination with the carbon fiber plate design are aimed at increasing the amount of stored energy that you get. All super shoes are aimed at giving you as much energy back as possible, with these being New Balance's best yet. Well, if you want to check out either the Fuel Cell Supercomp Elite V4 for race day or the Fuel Cell Rebel V4, which could be for race day, it could be for all of your training as well, then head to the link in the show notes.